Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences with family and friends. Whether you're documenting a vacation or you're sharing your favorite restaurants or bars, whatever it is, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow friends or family, your favorite actors, your favorite chefs, your favorite writers, your favorite musicians. It's social. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram, your Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share those curations to your social media. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+. Sweet Spot wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, very important, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is available for free on iTunes and Stitcher. This is essentially a part-time job for me. What's happening? Uh, how are you doing out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and uh, it's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest is Sarah Gerard. Her debut novel is called Binary Star. It's due out from $2 Radio in January of 2015. Uh, I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. I'm getting in early. Uh, there's a good drumbeat happening for this one, as there so often is, uh, for uh, books published by $2 Radio. Uh, as many of you know, many of you uh, read their books, and some of you who have listened to this program heard my conversation with Eric Obanoff not too long ago. Uh, he was a guest, and he is one of the principals of $2 Radio. So, uh, Sarah Gerard, Binary Star, she has a lot of good blurbs coming in. Kate Zambrino is a fan. Kate has been on this program. Jenny Offal also offered a blurb. Uh, I love Jenny Offal's latest book. I've talked about it, but she's elusive. I can't get her on the show. I can't even get her email address, but uh, you know, I haven't worked that hard at it. 
And oh, uh, before I forget, I should mention that Sarah Gerard, uh, the author of Binary Star, is doing a Kickstarter for her book tour. She asked me if I would mention it, and uh, I said, of course I would. $2 Radio is an independent press. It is uh, essentially a mom-and-pop operation. So uh, things like book tour, you got to improvise. And uh, Sarah is doing a Kickstarter to raise some funds to go on the road, and if you want to help her out, just go over to Kickstarter, and you can throw down a few dollars to support the cause. Uh, for more information, just visit sarah-gerard.com. sarah-gerard.com. So it's been an interesting past few days. Uh, for those of you who listen regularly, for those of you who listened to uh, the last episode, number 324, you know I had family in town, my sister, my nieces, my brother-in-law. I had to go to Legoland which is an amusement park uh, down in Carlsbad, California. And uh, we stayed at the Legoland Hotel, which is a Lego-themed hotel for children of all ages. So you can probably imagine what that was like. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was about what you would expect. It was like, try to conjure up your worst nightmare. Like lots of screaming children, lots of communicable disease, the smell of diapers uh, on the wind. And my daughter was terrified of the place because there was, a, like right when we get there, I'm checking into the hotel and there is a witch, a Lego witch in the lobby. It's a human being, a grown woman dressed up. I'm assuming it was a grown woman dressed up like a witch, uh, but it's like a Lego witch with the mask and everything. And my daughter, who is four, is going through a phase right now um, which is not directly related to Halloween, but is accentuated by the fact that Halloween season is upon us. Uh, she's terrified of anybody wearing a mask. She doesn't like it. She doesn't trust it. She doesn't want anything to do with it. And, uh, you know, what does she say? She's, she says, daddy, I don't like it when I can't see the face. Which I can sort of respect. And she, you know, of course this witch, was wearing a uh, Lego witch mask that looked kind of evil and she wanted no part of it. She was freaking out. I'm trying to check in. She's clinging to me, sobbing. Kids are everywhere. It's pandemonium. So we, we spend the night there uh, and then the next day we do the park in blazing sunshine. I'm with my sister, uh, my three nieces, my brother-in-law, my wife had to be back in uh, Los Angeles for work. So, you know, I, I took the hit. It was my family, you know, and uh, I was chivalrous. I took the Legoland hit. So we're going to the park and uh, my wife starts texting me that the fire alarm went off in our building at six o'clock in the morning, if not earlier. And it's this long string of texts about how things are chaotic well, you know, you leave your wife back home alone. You're hoping that everything goes well. And she's like, yes, you know, there's pictures. She's texting me pictures of police cars and fire trucks. And apparently there was a, uh, a man, a very intoxicated man in high heels <laughs> in our building who was screaming and shouting and uh, banging on doors uh, in the wee hours and then ripped a fire alarm off the wall in our building because... Uh, he claimed later to police that he had left his phone in someone's apartment, 
and uh, could not retrieve it. The person wouldn't answer the door or he forgot which apartment you know, it was. And he figured that the only way, you know, his logic was the only way I can get my phone back is if I pull, you know, if I pull this fire alarm off the wall. So he was fucked up. <laughs> and my wife is sending me pictures. It's a, it's a, a, a black guy, gay man, high heels. I'm assuming he's wearing high heels that he's gay. I could be wrong. And, uh, he was getting cuffed. He seemed very nonchalant according to my wife. Like he actually, he pulled the fire alarm off the wall and then was just hanging out in front of the building. (laughs) So I'm getting this information as I'm boarding essentially my first rides of the day at Legoland. And then as the day progresses, things get, uh, more and more chaotic. So yeah, my wife starts texting me, uh, you know, around midday that there are six police officers on our floor and our neighbor, uh, this redheaded guy is in handcuffs suspected of drug dealing and the police have found crystal meth on his person. So my wife is like, you know, he's on our floor. So my wife's like sticking her head out the door. There's six cops in the uh, hallway questioning this guy. He's in cuffs. He's upset. Uh, he's telling the cops that the, the, the crystal meth that they found isn't his, that the shorts he's wearing aren't his. <laughs> He said, I don't know. I didn't even know. I, I picked up these shorts off the floor when, uh, the, you know, I heard the doorbell and I put them on. I don't even know whose they are, that kind of thing. But he was fucked up. And it turns out, you know, that there was a fight in his apartment, a shouting fight. Uh, things were being thrown. That's why the cops were summoned. And he was in a fight with another guy. Uh, this redheaded guy uh, is a gay man. It could have been a lover's quarrel. I don't know what it was, but the guy that he was fighting with, as it turns out, has like a restraining order against him in another, in a neighboring town, like out in Valencia or something like that. He leapt off the balcony and ran away. And I guess this redheaded guy does a lot of meth because, you know, a while back, I remember there was a unit like directly below his that flooded because he was quote, like trying to fix his sink. And now I'm thinking that maybe uh, with the benefit of hindsight, he was tweaking and took his sink apart and flooded everything. Or maybe he was cooking in the sink. Who knows? That's what you want when you're the parent of a (laughs) four-year-old. And it's not, I mean, I don't live in that shitty of a building. But this is the city. This, you know, this stuff happens. Meth is an epidemic, ladies and gentlemen. But it was just a lot of chaos. It was a lot of chaos. It was, an, it was a draining weekend. It was great to see my nieces. It was great to see my sister and, and my brother-in-law. Uh, I loved having them here. Lego Land was fun. And it was fun because my daughter loved it. Her, you know, my nieces, they had a great time. So you sort of have to uh, acknowledge that as a parent and an uncle. But for me, it was draining. All of it. Legoland, the man in high heels, <laughs> the uh, meth dealer down the hall. It adds up. That's what I'm saying. There's a cumulative effect. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Sarah Gerard, and her novel, uh, once more, is called Binary Star. It's due out in January of 2015 from $2 Radio. I'm very pleased to have her here on the program. I'm pleased to get uh, what might be the first uh, audio interview she's done for this book, maybe. If not the first, then one of the first. So uh, here she is, folks. This is Sarah Gerard, and her novel, once again, is called Binary Star. I started writing for Bomb in, I want to say, 2011. Um, maybe it was 2010. It was right after I moved to New York, and I had a, I had an interview that I had done with a New York artist that um, I was unable to publish because it was for uh, a, a magazine that I was editing at the time, but when I moved to New York, I didn't have time to edit it anymore because I was beginning my master's program. and So I had this unpublished interview, and I um, knew about Bomb, but I had never really interacted with the magazine before. And I sent it to them, and they published it, and then I just began writing for them all the time. So I, I don't know. I was writing for the site probably for three years before I was told that they had this job opening. Um, and then I was working at a bookstore at the time at only um, three days a week, and I was you know, freelancing the rest of the time, art modeling and writing various for various uh, journals. Um, but money was really tight, so I thought if I could if I could have a more secure, like, steady income, you know, I'll pretty much do anything at this point. Yeah. So, what is so, your title? What are you? Are you an editor? Are you a contributing editor? What do you do? No, I mean, I I contribute pieces sometimes, but I handle circulation for the magazine, so I decide. Um, where the magazine should go, and I have to make sure that it gets there on time, which isn't always easy. It sounds more complicated than it is. Okay. So, and then um, you were working before that when you went. To, you came to New York for graduate school. Mm-hmm. And where did where did you go to grad school? Um, I went to the New School, and I made, I majored in fiction mostly okay. because I <laughs> had the most I had the most difficulty writing fiction. I had been like writing essays and freelance journalism down in Florida, which is where I'm from, and I wanted to write fiction, you know, fiction's my first love, and it's what I enjoy reading um, the most, but I, I had no idea how to write a story, and even going to grad school didn't really, I mean, it helped me tremendously, but I, I learned most of what I know about writing stories um, from my husband, actually, who's a, a filmmaker, who's uh, really passionate about plot and... Um, story structure. And yeah, story structure, he's like... You know, he has a, I don't know, a real hard-on for genre, and I don't, but it's really handy to know how those devices can work in a story, even if you're not, even if you're writing something very literary, you know. 
So okay, and anyway, so I majored, in, I majored in fiction. No, but I think that's interesting that to, you know because you're not the first person. In fact, recently I think I've spoken with uh, another writer whose uh, husband is a film a filmmaker of some sort. But um, that must be kind of a, a nice a nice partnership, or it's nice to have somebody there to talk to who uh, works in story in, in maybe a way that is more um, plot driven than most literary writers. <laughs> like you have a resource there, somebody to bounce things off of, someone to help you structure things or. Is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't talk about my stories while I'm writing them as much as he does. But it's, um, but I realized in talking to him about his his stories that I that there's a lot that I know about stories that I didn't know that I knew. So he'll bounce ideas off of me, and then we'll talk about how you know hypothetically this this character's flaw could work, you know, in tandem with this other character's flaw, um, or you know what would happen if this story was set somewhere else, and. You know, I mean, it's hard to sort of step outside yourself and see those things working in your own, um, you know, in your own stories. But when I'm talking about somebody else's, I feel a little like there's a sort of like remove that, like, I don't know, I guess makes it safe to toss ideas around. So, I, but, you know, if I were talking, if we were talking about one of my stories while I was writing it, that would be very embarrassing um, for me anyway. Yeah, no, why, yeah, this is the thing. It's so easy for me to pick up somebody else's work and to be like, okay, this isn't working. This is yeah. the, this needs to be moved around, but my then I sit down to write my own, and it's like I have no idea. <laughs> I feel like it's yeah. Suddenly... I know what I want out of my stories while I'm you know out of out of a story while I'm writing it, but I can't communicate that to somebody else. You know. So when you're working on a story, you you don't show it to anybody until you've taken it as far as you can take it. Yeah, yeah. And then your and then your husband is your first reader. Oh yeah, always, and uh. he. Um, Sometimes I find it annoying. He he points out the littlest things, uh, you know, like, you know, I think I wrote a story recently where I had named the character Rosalie, and he said, well, this has, you know, certain, like, racial overtones. And I was like, no, it doesn't. It's fucking Rosalie. It, you know, her name's Rosie. What are you talking And he said, no, no, I, I'm, I'm imagining this character um, being Latina. And I was like, well, that hadn't even occurred to me. How can you even see that? But it did really change the story dynamic. So you know, little things like that. He'll he'll pick up on little things like that. And did you change the character? Did you change the character's name? Yeah, her name's Danielle now. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Diminutive Danny. <laughs> so and your husband. It was a good point. It was a really good point that I hadn't even considered. You know, I think I was just I, I just really wanted to name a character Rosie. I didn't really care what it meant. You know, but he, uh, yeah, I don't know. He's like he's not always he doesn't always give me the feedback I want at the time, but it's it's always valuable feedback. Yeah. So what, what kind of, I mean, just may I ask what kind of films he makes? Is he like a commercial filmmaker or does he? No, he, he, um, he, he makes narrative films. Uh, he also does like book trailers and commercials and music videos, but his, um, his passion is for narrative films. He has a short that's making the festival circuit right now. Um, it's going to be it's actually in five film festivals this month. It's like in the next two weeks. Um, one of them is um, BFI London, which is really exciting. It's a really great festival. And one of them is this weekend at um, the Hampton Film Festival, and it's competing for an award. So uh, he just finished another one that um, the color, uh, he's actually going to do the color like right right now. Uh, and somebody's working on the sound right now, too. So that's almost done and going to be, uh, he'll, he'll be submitting it to festivals really soon. Wow. Um, and what's then his, he's going to start working name? on a longer. His name's David Fermentin. Okay. Well, we'll keep an yeah. eye out. We'll keep an eye out for him. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you come to New York. You said you worked at a bookstore prior to getting into uh, the job that you're currently in at Bomb. So that was McNally Jackson? 
Yeah. Okay. So and you're so you're great yeah, great bookstore, and you're uh, you're you're working there three days a week. You're going to the new school. You're uh, art modeling. Yeah. Well, I was working there full time while I was going to the new school. Actually, I was there five days a week, and then going to school at night. And I don't know how I did that, and I did. <laughs> and then after I graduated, I decided I needed to really um, shift my focus and went down to three days a week and then was modeling for artists, and mostly that entailed photographers, but uh, you know, um, but also drawing classes and painters. And that was you know, something that could bring in a lot of money at once, but not, you know, it didn't really place a lot of demand, demand on my time. So wait, so you were like modeling, meaning like you're like a fashion model or meaning like you're like the naked person in the art class? Yeah, I was like a naked person in the art class. You were. And you can do that. Like, see, I would be terrified. I don't think I could do it. You forget that you're naked. You do. You know, you, I don't think yeah. I would. I think I'd be like, I'm very naked. Well, I don't know. I, I just, I, I wish I weren't as hung up. I'm trying to be honest. I don't think I could do it. But some people can. I think that's cool. It was scary the first time. Uh but only for, you know, only for a couple of minutes. And then you notice that nobody else in the room seems shocked by your nudity. Right. And I think also in a drawing class, because you have to be still, you, um, you know, you, 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 it's kind of, it can be kind of an out-of-body experience. You don't feel like, for instance, you know, the air in the room moving against your skin. Um, the room is pretty, it's kept warm enough to be comfortable. So it's, you know, you know you're not really aware of your own nudity. It's different. With, with photography because you're constantly moving around. Um, but so, again, you know, you, wait, the photographer... Are, are, you, are you naked for the photographers too, or is this... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is, where, this is where it gets a little... You know, how do I say this? Um, you know, this is, this, is a, this is an entirely different kind of art making. And, sometimes, and I, it can be... I wouldn't want to say it can be dangerous, but it can has the potential to be dangerous if you're not really careful about who you, who you work with. Um, most of the people that I worked with came in through a site called Model Mayhem, and I would have to screen them over email like for several days before I made an appointment, and then we would have to settle on a rate, which uh, I won't say out loud because everybody's, everybody's rate is different, but everybody makes exceptions. Um, or, you know, everybody's, everybody's rate is the same, but everybody makes exceptions too because, you know, you, you need, need money. You need money. So, like, give me a ballpark, yeah. though. Like, if I'm if I'm going to go try, if someone actually wants to pay me to be naked, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, what could I get? What could I get out there? What's the going rate? Well, you're a man, so it's different. Oh. But for a woman, uh, it it tends to be the standard tends to be a hundred dollars an hour, okay. and you and some people have hourly minimums. So you would say, like, you know, it's a hundred dollars an hour with a three hour minimum, um, and then you know they'll say something like. You know, like, what if, uh, you know, what if I paid you more but for less time or, you know, or like more per hour but for less time or, you know, what if, well, what if I told you we would work for four hours but, you know, but, you know, but you would only charge me 75 or something. You know, I mean, so that's what I mean when I say everybody makes exceptions. You know, sure, it's a, sure. that's the, that's, that's where you begin negotiations is at $100 an hour. And you're, and you're not um, worried, and you're not worried about these people like taking the photographs and repurposing them for, you know. Websites. You or... have. To, I think you have to know they're going to do that anyway. Yeah. I mean, sure, there are definitely naked pictures of me circulating on the internet right now, but they're under a pseudonym. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. You know, and people need to get over nakedness, including me. I just, you know, it's just. I don't know. I'm not there yet. I don't have any problem. I really don't. I don't have any I problem really don't with. Care. You don't care. Good for you. <laughs> not. 
at all. <laughs> good, good for you. So, okay. Yeah. So you, um, prior to New York and, you know, this is like your book, Binary Star due out in January, uh, seems to draw heavily on your own life. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you're, you're taking, uh, turns and fictionalizing a lot, but you, you definitely have gone through a lot and you have a lot to write about in that respect. I think the book reflects that. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but like getting to writing because everybody has their path, but I think that, uh, you know, yours is compelling and definitely worth talking about. So can you, can you maybe tell listeners a little bit about how you got to the point where you, you know, you're packing up and moving to New York and enrolling at the new school and wanting to study fiction? I um, moved back to Florida after college to go to um, eating disorder rehab, and I was in rehab for two months. Uh, and then wait, and I can, got I, out can I stop and, you for a second? You said eating disorder rehab. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was in an inpatient rehabilitation facility in Tampa that also treated people with um, drug addiction, and I was living in like a special house for people with eating disorders um, within this sort of like compound. Um, and there was actually a girl that I knew who was best friends with my boyfriend at the time, who ended up in the same house with me at the same time, uh, which, that's a crazy story, but for another day, I think. Anyway, it was a really bizarre period in my life, um, and it had been inevitable for quite a while, you know, that I would end up in this place, but was definitely precipitated by, you know, um, the events of, like, the, the preceding semester of my life, my last semester in college, and I, I was student teaching because I thought I wanted to be a high school English teacher, uh, double majoring in English and secondary education with like um, an honors college minor and I was interning at a school and also taking classes on the side and I was in a really troubled relationship and I was anorexic. So oh. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, anorexic and also like addicted to, to diet pills and caffeine and it was, it was um, and I was also in this long, in the relationship that I was in at the time was long distance. So I was in and out of New York every other month, you know, like spending whole weeks with my boyfriend in Chicago and really just feeling uh, isolated and um, stressed out and I was not sleeping or eating. So oh, God. Difficult time. Okay, so so how do you get, um, like when it comes to eating disorders, anorexia, the caffeine addiction, how do you get get there? Like where does, do you have like an origin story? Do you know where it started or... Yeah, I think everybody has an origin story. I should also point out that a story can begin anywhere. So uh, when I was a kid, I took gymnastics lessons, started taking gymnastics when I was six. Um, my best friend was taking classes also, um, and that's why I wanted to start. Um, but again, like it didn't really start there. You know, I mean, that's probably where I learned that I could shape my body with, you know, a certain amount of will, you know, that I could like will my body to be a certain shape and, um, push it beyond its limits, you know, but, uh, also I was raised in America. So, you know, my parents, um, fed me, you know, things that they thought were good for their children at the time. Like I was eating macaroni and cheese. I was eating, um, you know, uh, like any number of things out of a box. And, you know, my parents both worked during the day. So sometimes I had, you know, I had to eat, like, on the run or, you know, I had a babysitter who would cook for me. And um, I think a lot of people can probably place their, you know, the beginnings of their struggles with food in the foods that they ate when they were a kid, you know, or the way that their parents ate or, you know, it's a... So Because I, I have a daughter and we feed her macaroni and cheese all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, like, well... So, but it's so hard. Do you have kids? 
No. Okay. So and I, and, and so, I'm not. This is not to place blame on my parents. Either my parents are excellent, excellent parents. Right. And, but know, I, 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 as I, every, I think every parent wants to make the right choices for their children. So. Well, but it's hard, it's hard just not, because kids, kids just won't eat. Like you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's, there's only so many things. Yeah. So it's like. You, you know, I know better. I know macaroni, macaroni and cheese is really good, though. I mean, it really is. Um, but it's, it's delicious. It's, yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's not good for you. But uh, I think about this stuff. You know, you want to make wise decisions in terms of what your child consumes, but at the same time, you know, you're exhausted. The kid doesn't want to eat the fruit and the you know, and you're just okay. Here's some French fries and some macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Sure, sure, and I completely understand that. And this is again, you know, a story can have any. You know, it can, it can begin anywhere, um, and it, it, there I I can't point. The thing about an eating disorder is that it it, it kind of arises from nothing, so and not, but also everything. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't only that, and it wasn't only gymnastics lessons, and it wasn't only ballet lessons following that, and it wasn't it wasn't only you know when I first noticed that there were fat grams printed on the back of a box of food that I, I was going to eat for dinner, you know. Or like, or even the way that any that I heard anybody talking about food when I was growing up, and you know, I my my best friend was heavier than me and would talk about that all the time, you know. So yeah, because we should say you you, know. you were not a heavy child. No, you're not no. a heavy person. And, you're, you, you're and nobody ever told me nobody ever told me that I needed to be thinner either. I I would see you know, I mean, I would see other girls in my like ballet classes or my gymnastics classes like looking at them looking at themselves in a certain way or weighing themselves in the dressing room before class, but. You know, nobody told me that I was fat ever. Um, I I am the only person who, who ever told myself that. Wow. But you know, but but other people, you know, but I've been interviewing people about their struggles with food for a couple of months now, and other people's parents did say that to them. Yeah. Or you know, I even I interviewed somebody a couple of weeks ago who said that she also took gymnastics when she was a kid, and they brought in. You know, she was a um, she was an elite gymnast. They brought in this like. I think he was probably a Russian, she said, coach, um, who had trained Olympic athletes. And he had this really like, really complicated method of weighing his, um, his the, the girls on his team and telling them exactly how much weight they needed to lose by, you know, the end of the week. So, I don't know. I mean... Damn. See, that scares me, though, because it doesn't sound like you had any kind of, like... Uh, episode or shitty boyfriend or like overbearing mother who like was freaking out about dieting, you know, because like you hear those stories in the context of eating disorders a lot where, um, you know, there was someone who was pressing it. But for you, it seems like it was self-generated and it was just sort of, you know, like, or is there some sort mm-hmm. of like, I mean, stop me. Am I wrong or? I, I wouldn't say it was self I mean, you know, I had ideas of my own, but I also, Again, grew, grew up in America, so I was, right. you know, I was reading like Bebop magazine when I was a kid, you know, and like, you know, I mean, we, I was exposed to the same, you know, to the same things as everybody else, and was told, I think, you know, in a really subtextual way, what, what beauty was, just like everybody else. Yeah. So, you know, and then, and then also, I should say, there's a lot of, there's a lot of addiction in my family. Um, okay, I was going to ask. I was going to ask that. So, yeah. Okay. My, you know, um. Not not in my immediate family, but in my extended family, there there was a lot of active addiction going on when I was growing up, and uh, you know, certain studies have have shown that addiction can be hereditary. So you know, I I, I was very aware of uh, the dangers of drinking too much or taking drugs when I was a kid, but not you know I didn't understand that eating disorder was also could also be a kind of addiction. Yeah. So I think that you know. So wait, you, you, know, you did you avoid alcohol? Um, you know, up to a certain age, I mean, I was in high school and yeah. my friends were drinking and I drank in high school and, 
by the end of high school, I was doing drugs, but, um, you, you know, but it's hard, it's impossible to predict, I should say, what is going to become, you know, which of these habits will become addictive. Right. Um, so. Okay. So you get out, you get out of high school, you go off to college at Hofstra. Yeah. And you're from Florida. Where in Florida are you? Where did you grow up? Tampa? Tampa Bay. Okay. So you go up to Hofstra and this is where things sort of come to a head the first time. Right. Like meaning you, uh, you go back home, like you kind of, you had that long distance boyfriend and you're unhealthy and, and you, 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 yeah. you tell me. <laughs> well, so in my last semester, um, yeah, most of the time when I was at, for most of my years at Hofstra, I was doing pretty well. I think by my junior year, I had begun really throwing up my food often and. So this was bulimia, you know, this was bulimia it, too. You're right. Yeah. Most, I think most, most eating disorders would be, could, could be either like, you know, um, it's, it's rare that you, that you have only bulimia or only anorexia or only overeating. You, most of the time people kind of, um, do whatever is most convenient <laughs> for them. Right. Um, <laughs> so at the time bulimia was convenient later on, it became pretty inconvenient. So I, I just stopped eating altogether. But oh. anyway, so I, I went to rehab when I was a senior, um, and I, I took a leave of absence so that I could, I, I took a medical leave so that I could do that. How long would you go without eating? Like I, forgive me for not knowing too much about this, but I mean like when someone's anorexic and bulimic and especially when you say you quit eating altogether, like, well, like what are we talking about? Are we talking like about like 40, 50 days of fasting or what is it? No, that would be crazy. No, um, I was, I was eating, you know, certain things, uh, at certain times of the day and I had a pretty rigorous routine like I don't want to give anybody ideas who might be listening right now, but you know, I um, there were foods that I was comfortable with, and there were certain things that I would drink, you know, in certain amounts, and I, I would I would get ideas from the internet, you know, just like a lot of interested girls do. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, a friend of mine was forwarding me, um, you know, these links to these crazy like pro anorexia sites. Um, do you know, are you aware of this movement? Like, there's I, I had no idea this even existed, but there's like this insane thing out there where it's like they're celebrating it almost are you aware of like, is this a thing yeah i'm i'm yeah i'm, I'm yeah i'm aware of that and it's it's and it's, it's really sad I yeah mean, what can you say about it yeah it's, really it's horrible sad. i didn't i mean i'm always the last to know everything but i was like this is this is a thing i can't even believe this exists but yeah it's been around for a while and now it's all over tumblr and all over instagram sometimes i sometimes i, I stumble across them on uh you know in my like yeah, whatever surfing the web it's i mean you know sick people will find sick people yeah be sick with and the internet is great for that mm -hmm. so but there are also you know there are a lot of really body positive sites out, out there also right, you know um, right so if okay. they want if they want if 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 they don't if they get tired of doing that they can they can find help sure well let's hope so you you leave uh hofstra Hofstra's on Long Island, is that right? Yeah. Okay, so you leave Hofstra, um, and you go back home, and you check into rehab to get some help. Right. My my parents were a big help during this time. Um, my, I think my dad, you know, my dad knew, um, or they, they probably both knew, but my dad was the one that I called and said, like, I can't do this anymore. And they flew me down. Um, I spent, uh, actually, before I went down to Florida, I had to spend, I think it was a week in a, on a mental, in a mental ward, um, because I had gone to my school counselor 
um, with my friend. I actually had my friend escort me to the school counselor, and then she was like, well, I can't let you go home now because <laughs> you've just confessed to me that you're, you know, ba- you know, basically suicidal. So she, um, you know, then I became her ward, and she escorted me to the hospital. Um, and that was a crazy experience. I mean, no pun intended. Uh, I think I've never been in a mental ward before, but not, not you know, yet. I definitely felt like I didn't, I felt like I really didn't belong there. And yet there I was. Well, that's a and good, then, that's a good thing in a way. You're like, okay, so I'm not this crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so I really need, I needed to get out, I needed to get out of there as soon as possible. Otherwise I think I was going to go crazy too. And my mom came and got me and, you know, anyway, I ended up in the three heaven, Florida and, um, and I was there for 60 days, and then I left, and I was, uh, you know, I think maybe because I was still dating the same person, and, and I, I was in there with, you know, one of his best friends at the time, I was never really, like, free of that mindset. Um, I was, I had all the, you know, I, I still knew all the information that I knew before I, I went in there, you know, about, what, you know, what I needed to do to lose weight, and I still had this emotional crutch in my, you know, codependent relationship, and I still had this his best friend who was not interested in getting well at the time at all. And, you know, we were really feeding, feeding into, um, each other's sicknesses. So we got out and started spending a lot of time together. And then, um, I had met, you know, the, the person that I went, um, traveling with, which is probably the story that you want to hear. Uh, I had met him before. He was my cousin, my, my, my friend's cousin. And, um, he had problems of his own. Uh, so, you know, I went over to his house one day with my my friend, and he he was like, you know, I don't want to be here anymore in Florida, you know, meaning in, in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is where we were. And I said, I don't really want to be here anymore either. This is fucking lame. So we made this crazy plan. He had friends who had gone train hopping, and um, he thought he knew something about it. Um, turns out we didn't really know anything. Um, but we got, we got this thing that's called a crew change, and for anybody who hasn't hop trains before it basically tells you where, where the trains go and you know um how, how to how to find the train that you want to that you want to get on so um we had this thing and we turned out to be it turned out to be an, an incomplete guide to the railways in, in north america uh, it was missing like a third of the pages um but we just like left we just got on his dad actually i don't know why his dad did this but his dad drove us to the Amtrak station in Tampa, and he's just like, all right, <laughs> oh, yeah. His dad's like, well, okay, think, go go on, kids, have fun, hop in the rails. You know what do you? But you're a parent. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Your kids like, I, I'm going to do this no matter what you say. Um, you yeah. know, I think he gave us some money, yeah. not a lot, but. How about I'll, mean, I'll buy you an Amtrak ticket? I'll buy you like a around the country Amtrak ticket. You could just ride on the train. <laughs> But he knew that, well, you know, well, we didn't want to ride, we didn't want to ride passenger trains. That right. wasn't our plan at all. We wanted to be off, we wanted to disappear completely uh, and never be found. Right. I know. It's just, you know? I'm, like, as a parent, I'm just going, oh, Jesus. You know, like that, your parents, was, your, your, your parents must have been so freaked out. Did they know you were doing this? Oh, of course. Yeah. And they're, they, they, yeah, they were a, totally freaked out. Yeah. So, I, I think I wrote them a letter at some point. You know, we ended up in Maine um, painting his uncle's house. Uh, in, in exchange, his uncle let us stay there for two weeks if we painted his house. So we did. And we, he gave us some bicycles and we were just riding around the main coast. It was great. It was beautiful. That's great. Um, 
And at one point, I wrote my parents a letter. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said something to the effect of like, I'm not like you, and I and I will and I'll never I'll I'll never be like you, and I don't want that anyway. So, you know, this is this is my life now. This is just what I'm going to do with forever. <laughs> and then, of course, like a, a month later, you know, it all came to it all came crashing to an end. Literally. But, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. like, so just like the mechanics. I mean, not that we we want you know we don't want to encourage people to do this, but I mean, I think it, it does beg the question from a curiosity perspective. Like, you have this like you know uh, abridged guide to the you know the train system of you know the freight train system in the states. You go to a rail yard. Like, what you have to go? <laughs> you have to go. Do you have to go after dark so nobody sees you? Like, is it? Can you do this in broad daylight and you just climb on board one of these cars? Is that what I mean? Pretty much. Yeah. You just go, you sit there until the train that you think is yours pulls in, and then you get on. You know, you have to be careful. I mean, you could get arrested, but um, there's a lot of, there are lots of places to hide. And have you ever been to a train yard? I mean, there's plenty of places to hide. Yeah. And, you know, usually you're there with somebody, you know, I mean, we, you can do it alone, but you should, probably shouldn't, you know. So usually you would want to, like, hook up with somebody who had done it a lot, which... Actually, we tried to do it at one point, and they stole my iPod and disappeared. We all got drunk in the train yard, and and we woke up at like six in the morning, and my my iPod was gone, and this person was gone, and we didn't even know his real name. Right. So that sucked. <laughs> I just remember, I just remember like the uh, the Into the Wild, you know, the Alexander Supertramp story, the John Krakauer book, and yeah, in the movie, he's like he's hopping the rails on the West Coast, and like some dude just beats the shit out of him like some guy who works for the railway you uh-huh. know? like there's people uh-huh. who are on the lookout i mean that it's kind of dangerous in that way right there it's really dangerous you know these people are transients probably for a reason yeah yeah i don't and, think and you're like a young attractive girl like that you think this is very dangerous <laughs> like i'm I'm, yeah. I'm like retro, you know, retroactively worried for you, but I'm also glad that you made it out. So, um, where, where does it end? How does this, how does this experience end? Well, I jumped off of a train while it was moving and I landed on the railroad tracks on my face and my boyfriend, uh, jumped off after me and he sprained his wrist and then we ended up in the hospital and that was it. So we how, went back how, to Florida, how fast all was, broken how, up. How fast was this train going? I can't. I have no idea. I mean, I was on it, so it's really hard to say. Probably, I don't know, thirty miles an hour. If I had to guess, forty miles an hour. It was going fast enough that I was, you know, mauled. Why did you, <laughs> Why did you jump? Like, did you think it, that was as slow as it was going to go? And you're like, this is now or never, or like? It It was pulling into the yard in broad daylight, and we had been on it, and it was we had been on it all night, so probably ten or twelve hours raining the whole time without food and without uh, fresh water. And we were hungover when we got on the train. So we were not using our best judgment and had never really done this before. You know, we were still really new at it. Um, We didn't want, I think our fear was that we would probably get caught because it was pulling in. We were in an open car. Like we, we were in a car that's called an intermodal car. So it's carrying a a truck. Um, And, we weren't really well hidden, so we had no idea where it was going to stop and whether when we got off somebody was going to see us and arrest us, so we decided to, you know, take a chance. Well, where and where was this? What state were you in? It was in Buffalo. Okay, <laughs> Buffalo. So you, you jump off, you hit your face on a, on a, on a like an actual rail? Yeah, I don't remember because um, I was knocked out, but my boyfriend remembers. Um, he said that I fell on a cross tie, so that's, I think, I think that's what happened. I don't know. Uh. 
Jeez Louise. Okay, so yeah. you wake up. You're uh, in the hospital. They've stitched you up, and that's the end of mm-hmm. your that's the end of your career as a rail hopping hobo. My boyfriend went out again after that, but I yeah, that was the end. I, and I thought for a while, I thought that I would too, but then I um, discovered that I wanted more out of life. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this wasn't the same boyfriend that you had long distance at Hofstra, who was in Chicago, that was like really dysfunctional and. Same boyfriend? Yeah. Different? Different boyfriend. Different okay. boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. But kind of, I mean, the guy like just leaves you and goes back onto the trains, or did he stay with you? He was really upset when we broke up. No, we, we stayed together. Um, okay. And I, I, we're still friends today. I mean, he's back now in Florida. Um, you know, he, he had to go off and find himself again. And So he's not riding the I rails? He's not riding the trains anymore? No, no, he's not. I, and I and I hope he doesn't anymore. Yeah. I I think he learned his lesson. I hope he did. Yeah. For God's sake. Yeah. Okay. So you go home, and this is like this is where you have hit bottom, and this is where you start to turn in a different direction in a real concrete way. Mm-hmm. I I started working for um my boyfriend's mother worked for the school system, and um because I had this background in education, I, actually I never completed that degree. I, I I completed the English degree, but not not the degree in education because I would have had to go back to New York and and turn all over again. And by that time, I decided I didn't want to teach high schoolers. So I didn't finish that degree, but I had experience in the classroom. And she helped me get a job in elementary school where she was also working um, with with a a teacher who was leading a class of um, emotionally and behaviorally uh, disabled children, which is really hard work. And like, just requires so much patience. I, I like all day long wouldn't really have time to think about my own needs, because like the the immediate needs of the students really just overrode anything else, you know. Um, so I was still like, you know, every now and then I think I would. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it took me a while to really pull myself out of caring so much about my weight, or I guess reacting to. Um, stressors in my life, you know, um, in that way. So and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when, when you were on the rails and you were in that p- part of your life, were you still battling with eating disorders in an explicit way or? Yeah, we went to, um, at one point we ended up in Boston and so this is just an example, like, but we ended up in Boston. Um, it sucks being homeless in Boston. People yeah. don't care at all. And yeah. we sat outside, uh, <laughs> we sat outside of the, I think it was the Amtrak station. I don't know, uh, somewhere for like, God, it's like four hours, and we had like a sign, and people were just walking by. They didn't even look at us. So we were just like invisible. Finally, this girl came up to us, and I think she was, um, you know, I don't know, I think she must have been religious because she was really interested in saving us. And she <laughs> <laughs> she got she bought us some food, and she got us some tickets so we could take the train to Worcester, which is where we hopped on the last train. And um, I think she, I, I mean, I was. I was still calling myself vegan, but it's like, you know, how, how picky can you really be, you know? So she got us, uh, like, some, I think, hamburgers and milkshakes at the McDonald's, and I ate all of those starving, and I ate all of it, and then within, like, half an hour, I was in the, the train station bathroom throwing it up again. I mean, just to give you an idea of how completely senseless that kind of, like, you know, I don't know, that kind of mental illness can be. Like, yeah. I was literally starving, and yet couldn't keep it. You know, couldn't keep a hamburger down. God. So can, for okay. fear of what? I have no idea. But. So, okay. So now, like, on the flip side, I mean, I know, like, addiction and, and um, you know, the mental illness or whatever, things that 
uh, you fight serious battles against as a person, you know, it's an ongoing thing. So I don't mean to talk about it in the complete past tense, but you've clearly, you know, moved on and have gotten um, well. And I'm curious, like, just for people listening to know if you have any insight into, like, is there a, a kind of concrete assessment of the psychology behind eating disorders? I mean, it's a control thing. Like, how do you understand it? Like, what what is it that drives people to do this? I, I can only speak for myself because I think everybody is different. And, you know, people, I think, you know, people use their food in, like, you know, in this infinite variety of ways. Everybody eats differently. Um, I don't know. I mean, so the question is what caused it for me or... I guess or, so. Or, yeah. Like, how do you understand it in retrospect? Like, how do you under how do you understand? I, I was completely dissociated from my body. I didn't feel like I was a. I, I didn't feel like I relied upon my body for survival, um, and you know, and I thought that it was just something that I could, you know, take out my my aggression on, um, and you know, it, I don't know. There was a strange sort of like division that happened in my, you know, in my, my understanding, which is that, you know, I wanted to feel something so I would hurt myself because I, I didn't, I had no idea what I was feeling because I had made myself purpose, purposely numb. So if I was starving, you know, I, I could feel something. If I cut myself, I would feel something, you know, but I also didn't want to feel the pain that I, you know, that I was really, I think, reacting to. So, you know, it, I, I was also by starving myself, sort of like numbing myself, you know, separating myself from my body. It, it sounds like, it sounds contradictory because it is, but you know, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep, well, that makes sense. And then the veganism, like when did you become vegan? My parents are vegetarian. So I grew up, I grew up vegetarian. I decided to stop eating animals when I was 10. Um, and I, I think in a way that kind of contributed also, I think, you know, people with eating disorders love to compartmentalize and, uh, and I don't know, I, I read something recently, I can't remember who said it, but, uh, you know, you, that, that, you, that you can't, you know, when, when you're in an abusive relationship, you know, you think that you can take, uh, you know, you, you think that because you're a certain kind of person, you can take this kind of abuse from this kind of person, you know, um, thinking that like, you know, if you're strong enough, it won't affect the rest of your, you know, the rest of your psychology that you've forget that you're a whole person and that when somebody when somebody is violent toward you that they're hurting all of you so you know you, you begin to hate yourself as well and become violent toward yourself as well um but you know but yeah so when i was so i went vegetarian and i think that's you know on the topic of compartmentalization that's when i began to sort of compartmentalize my food groups also i was thinking about food and and this is already happening in my mind, but this is just a, a way for me to practice, I think, like dividing up my food into smaller bits. So I, I think that had something to do with it as well. But my approach to veganism, veganism today is completely different. It's a, a holistic approach to, vi to, to um, violence in my life and thinking of my body as continuous with the rest of the animal kingdom. Okay, so can so, I want to stop. It's not too complicated. No, it's not. It's not. It's actually fascinating to me because I'm uh, essentially a vegan. I mean, it gets you can start to parse these things, as I'm sure you know. Um, depending on like what you wear, like there are people who are hardcore and like don't wear any like animal product. It, it's hard to avoid being vegan is actually really hard, but I'd say like, I'm like 90 something percent vegan and how I eat and what I do. And, um, my daughter as a result, because my wife is vegetarian as well, though she eats dairy. Um, 
you know, like our daughter just doesn't, we don't have that in the house. So we don't feed her meat. But like my, mm-hmm. my attitude is like, just because I know how I was as a kid that I'm not going to get dogmatic about it. I'm not going to say like, you can't eat meat. If she asks us for a hamburger, I'm going to get her one. <laughs> like I just, and like, I'm going to let her make the decision. Like, is there any danger, you know? Cause I, like, no. I mean, I just don't want to, I don't, I don't want to like create a situation where like, you know, cause there are people, you know, there's the old joke that like veganism is an eating disorder. It's just like, you know, it's just like a, club, uh, you know, but I don't think yeah. that, but I think that like maybe some people hide behind it as such or use it as a, you know, cause they're like, there are different ways of being a vegan. You can be a really unhealthy vegan who like only eats like, you know, rice crackers and water or whatever, you know? And, um, sure. I, I used to use it as an excuse too. I mean, right. it, it was a really convenient excuse. But that's not that's that has nothing to. I mean, I'm 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 not active in my eating disorder today, and I think it's largely because I'm vegan that I'm not active in my eating disorder today. I mean, not that you. I mean, and this is this is only me. I mean, this is this is how I found my way out. You know, you have to find your own way out if you're struggling with food. You know, find your own way to think about it. But so how did, I, it, how um, did it help you? Like, how did veganism help you find your way out? I, I I have as much as possible eradicated violence from my life. You know, if I see violence in the world, I um, I, I I speak out against it and I don't participate. And that this is just a, this is and that includes me. That includes my own body. I I'm very as much as possible very kind to my body today. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I think that this, I mean, <laughs> no, that's part of my, I mean, that's part of my calculation. Like people laugh at me, but I'm like, I can't take the animal abuse. Like I, that bothers me. And then the other thing, um, and I don't want to get too high up on a soapbox cause this to me is almost like its own episode, but it's something that's been in my mind and that I want to talk about or write about before too long is that in all the climate science debates, you know, all the stuff that people talk about with respect to climate change and how horrible it is and potentially like massively catastrophic. It's like recycle. It's like do this, do that. No one ever talks about food choice. And it's bananas. Yeah, isn't because that amazing? If you, if you quit yeah. eating meat, if you quit eating meat, this is a fact. If you quit eating meat or even like reduce dramatically the amount of meat and alcohol that you take in, um, that's better than not driving a car. Like you, 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 your carbon footprint is less than if you were to com- completely quit driving a car. Um, but yet no one wants to talk about it because people are so emotionally attached to their food. It's like a political non-starter because as soon as you tell people to stop eating hamburgers and steak, they're going to flip out and like start having a tantrum. And, you know, yeah, you can't tell people what to do with their food. Food right. is so personal. Yes. Food is, food is, food touches everything. Yeah. Food is their food is family and food is, food is, is their entire social life, you know? And it's the way, I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, it, you're, it, it's the way that you connect the, you know, your, your, your interior world with your exterior world, you know? And it's, I think impossible to dictate how somebody else should do that. Right. Um, and, and it would not, I mean, you know, and this is the thing when, when I went vegan the first time I was not, um, vegetarian even I had gone, you know, for a long time, and this is a complicated part of my history, but I've had a, a long sort of tumultuous history with men. <laughs> and, um, I, I was vegetarian when I went to college and then started eating meat again because I fell in love for the first time. And my boyfriend was like, you should have salmon because I'm Italian and my family (laughs) loves fish. Right. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I've gone back and forth and it's never lasted, you know. It's never, you know, I've I've eaten meat, not eaten meat. I've been vegan, vegetarian. I've been everything. I've not eaten at all. Um, Me too. And, you know. Well, except for the not eating at all. I've done, I've like, I find I've I've fluctuated. But I always come back to not eating meat. It's just the way I like to be, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was always a reaction to, I mean, I see now how much that was wrapped up in, in the way that I was thinking about, in this like very disordered way that I was thinking about food in general, um, that I would just like so, so readily like do what was told, you know, I mean, you know, and I did it all over the internet too. I would like, re- you know, read about, oh, this celebrity, this celebrity is only eating grapefruit today. And I was like, okay, I'll only eat grapefruit today because right. it seems to be working for her. And I had no idea, you know, it, it, it just, I think it, it goes to show how little I understood about the way that I, re, that I related to the, to the outside world, you know. I was so confused what was happening in my own, you know, in my own mind that I didn't know what, how, to, how to behave. So, and I would do whatever somebody told me to do. Um, but this is a choice for me, and I think everybody needs to come to that choice, you know, independently. Yeah, you but know, how, do you, how do you want to relate to the world with your food? Right. It's, it's important, and I think something everybody should think about, and you know, you should come to this. You should you should make the most sound decision that you possibly can on your own behalf. Right. I think that's the thing is that like I thought you, you you know I I like to think I'm wise enough to know that you can't dictate this to people, and that you know the minute you start talking about it, the minute they, it is the minute they close their ears and don't want to hear it. But at the same yeah. time, at the same time, like I do feel like our consumption patterns as a species. Uh, like something's got to give at some point. Like we have to start having a dialogue about this because it's very yeah. it's very relevant to like the, the like the future of the planet for my child and her children one day. And you know what I'm saying? It's a it's a real thing. Yeah. But yet it feels yeah, very, it, it feels I mean, very hot, it feels very hot to the touch. Like people just don't want to address it. Well, because it's it's very ugly to look at. It's it's really. I mean, if you if you've ever seen videos shot inside factory farms, you know. Yeah. I mean, those are real. That's not something that. You know, I mean, and it's a, and it's a and it's a horribly polluting industry. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially, I mean, pig farming is just like, it, I mean, you know, if you've ever seen aerial photographs of of um, pig farms, it looks I, like, I it looks like up, a festering abscess. No, I grew up next to one. Like literally, there oh, was they smell a, awful. They smell horrible. They smell this terrible. Right next to my neighborhood in Indiana. <laughs> was a, a fucking pig oh, farm God. and I would drive past it on the school bus every morning and it just reeked. It was awful. Yeah. So, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm, and, and my grandfather was a butcher. So like I've got it on every side. So I, I grew up like going to the slaughterhouse and, you know, not seeing things, thank God. But like it was, it was shut down at that point. He was retired, but it was pretty hardcore. So I, I think that, uh, it's something people need to think about and I want to like write something about it, but I know that as soon as I do, people are just going to be like, Shut the fuck up! <laughs> you know, don't preach! You know, and people are writing. People are are beginning to write about it now. Yeah. You know, writing about the um, the meat industry and the processed food industry, which is equally horrific. But yeah. um, you know, I've heard this book recently called "The Meat Racket." Have you read this book? No. Uh-uh. Uh it, It's mostly about um, chicken farming, but you know, but at, at one point, this is the most graphic image that I came away with from the book. At, at one point. This author describes um, these chicks, which were d- delivered to a farm, you know, because you have to order the you have to order the chicks from the company, and the chicks are delivered live to the farm, and within days they were just li- li- liquefying, like actually just liquid, like you know, their legs were falling off yeah. um, because they had been delivered sick, and it's you know they, they used that it was it was a way of punishing the farmer for speaking out against the practices the the company's practices yeah. business practices, but. Anyway, so horrific yeah, suffering. Horrific. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Like, like, there's enough suffering in the world. Like, if I can like take out some piece of it by uh, the way that I consume, like, all the better. You know, like, I, that's my attitude yeah. anyway. And I'm not perfect at it either. I don't want to sound too high, like, high on my horse, but I'm trying my best. Right. I mean, how much does your individual choice really affect change in the world? 
you know, yeah. but I, I mean, more than you'd think though, I would argue more. I mean, like, you know, cause it's like, yeah, I mean, like I have to believe that it has some impact. Otherwise why give a shit at all? You know, like you have to right. do the best you can within the context of your own experience and hopefully like it catches on or, you know, whatever. But yeah. Uh, I want to get back to like your writing, like your, your transition to write your writing life and the publication or the impending publication of binary star and how that all happened. Because, um, you know, I love, I gotta say, I love stories like this. Um, and, and you see them in the world of literature, um, somewhat often, you know, where people have gone through a lot and, uh, they've kind of triumphed in a way and made art out of it. And I think that's awesome. So, and I know it was must have been difficult, all of it. You know, like it's 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 hard to go through what you went through with food and um, rail hopping, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and then it's and then you sit down to write a book and to try to process it and alchemize it into art, and that's its own set of challenges. So, was New School like really instrumental? Did you feel like getting the graduate degree in creative writing once you moved up to New York? Like, did you feel like that was a really um, significant experience for you in terms of learning how to do it? Absolutely. I didn't have a whole lot of support down in Florida with my with my fiction. You know, I was writing. You could call it journalism. I was writing for um, the alt weekly newspaper, and you know, I was doing some work for the Tampa Bay Times. Um, and I didn't really want to write journalism. I I I I have so much respect for journalism that I couldn't pretend to be a journalist. <laughs> you know, so. Um, I, I didn't really want to. I didn't really want to write that way, and I was looking for somebody to give me feedback on my fiction. And I was like giving my stories to a friend of mine who I knew like read a lot, but he didn't know anything about writing fiction. So um, moving to New York was really just a way for me to, um, I guess, put some pressure on myself and seek help. And that's what happened at the New School. It was an excellent program. Um, and how far? How much? Know, work, I, how much worked on the book did you get done while you were in the degree program? I mostly wrote short stories while I was in the program, um, and then in my last semester, began well, this my second to last semester, I began writing Binary Star. But at the time, it was a very, very different story. I didn't know that it was going to be about me um, or about my. Yeah, I didn't know that I was going to be pulling so much from my actual life. I should say, um, it was about you know two girls um, in their. Like, I think they had just graduated high school, and they were like best friends. I, when I was when I was younger, I think like a lot of young women, I had a really, really intense relationship with my best friend, um, who I'm no longer friends with anymore. So I thought that I wanted Wait, to write about that relationship. What, what happened? Oh, it's a long, it's a long story. It's the next book. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the next book. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I wish her the best, but, um, anyway, so I thought it was going to be about that story. Um, and, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to use this, um, this metaphor of the binary star, because uh, I, I love reading about astronomy. I love the language of astronomy. It's um, so uh, explosive <laughs> and oh, yeah. so luminous. So, yeah, I, but it wasn't really working in the way that I was writing it. I was trying to use these sort of cross-genre methods, and I, um, it wasn't really holding together as a story. I think maybe because the story itself wasn't strong enough. So I scrapped it after um, I graduated. I wrote like something like 150 pages, and I was like, "This sucks!" And I just threw it all away, uh, and began writing it again um, with my own, you know. And I, th- I thought it was going to be a memoir, uh, and then I couldn't write the whole thing as a memoir. Um, I had to fictionalize some things because the story, because writing memoir is really hard, you know. Yeah, your well, life, your life fiction. is not a. It's all right. Like, I but mean, the, yeah, the thing is, is that like. 
memoir is all fiction, but fiction is all memoir. I mean, you know, the, the genre distinctions. I mean, I know some people like really do like, you know, close to purely imaginative fiction writing, but my, from my perspective, it seems like the best art, there's a lot of blood on the page and it's, you know, usually, mm-hmm. usually what happens or often what happens, uh, it seems like people sort of circle the thing that they really want to say for a while. And maybe they write short stories or they write a shitty draft of a novel or whatever. And then finally they just say, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to tell my story. And then things start getting good. You know, for a long time, I thought that, um, fiction was somehow purer than nonfiction that, it, that it wasn't real writing if I was writing about my own life. And I know that I'm not the first person to say this. Um, so I, I, th- I think that's initially why I wanted to study fiction. You know, I, I thought that I thought that that writing uh, fiction was somehow more admirable than writing nonfiction. You know, that you know because it's your it's your your real story that it, it takes less effort or something. And then and then when I sat down to write this book, um, and of course this, you know I, I had a change of heart all over again. But when I sat down to write the book, um, I, I realized that what I needed to, what I needed to, to, um, give myself over to in, in order to finish the book or like carry the story through the book was the excitement surrounding my own story. You know, this, like the, the intense, the intensity and the, and the passion that was shooting through my own, my own biography. Yeah. Um, well, you have so many, you know, come on, you, you wrote the, ra- you have so many things, good things to write about. I don't mean that they were good things to go through, but I mean, there's a lot there. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm of two minds. Like I sort of sometimes feel, cause like in my personal writing taste, I, I get impatient with fiction that feels too far away from the author. I'm, I always, I always want to know, I love books that are close to the bone where it's like, okay, this is her story. I know she's fictionalized some of it, but I know that, that she went through a lot of this and she's pulling heavily from her own life. And then I also understand the argument that like, you know, more imaginative fiction, that's less self-focused or whatever, you know, I think some people would argue that, that that it's less narcissistic, or I don't know. You know, but I don't. I don't, I don't have any really. I don't. I, I have no problem with the fact that I'm a narcissist. What's wrong with you know? What's wrong with that? You know, I mean, it, it, not not that I think you know, I, not that I think I'm more more important. You know, but just that you know, I I'm I'm the most important thing in the world to myself. What what the fuck is wrong with that? Well, and it's like that's the you know, thing. There's I mean, less aside pretense. From my husband. Well, there's less pretense. You know, like it's like let's just get. We're all writing about ourselves one way or another. We're all working out our shit. I just think that it's maybe um, there's less static to cut through as a reader. Like I I guess I'm always psychoanalyzing, or maybe not psychoanalyzing, but I'm always looking for the writer in the work. That's just my nature, and that's why I think I do this show. <laughs> Um, and so it's, just, I, I, it's less frustrating when I'm reading a book and I know that I'm getting the author's soul or whatever, as opposed to like, okay, so this is a story about an astronaut and, you know, this astronaut is theoretically part of the, you know, it, it's more work for me that way. Well, my, my husband, as you know, is also a storyteller and he never, he, you know, he, he never, well, so far has never made a movie about like, you know, a 20 something guy in Brooklyn. Right. He's, he has no interest in stories like that. In fact, in his first two, um, films, the protagonists are women. Um, and the, there, there's a, a male character in his first film that he's so peripheral as, as to not almost not even be a character. But I know because I know David, uh, I know, you know, which, you know, which parts of his life he's sort of, you know, drawing from in order to, to, 
puzzle the story together. I, I, I see him very plainly in the story, even though it's about, in his first film, about, like, you know, a, a Hasidic woman in South Williamsburg, you know. Yeah. If she seems, on, on the surface, she seems to bear no relation to him at all. But I, I know where he is in that story. So. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's harder to be autobiographical maybe in film and cinema than it is in a novel or in a, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Tell Woody Allen that. <laughs> yeah, I guess you yeah, There you go. There you go. That's right. And you know what? I think ultimately it just comes down to taste, and it's there's no right or wrong answer, but it's just my, yeah. my thing, you know. And it sounds like at least in this book it was your thing as well. So you you start to write the book, and then how fast does it come together once you sort of make the decision to go all in and tell your you know to draw heavily from your own experience? Um, I began writing it in October of 2012, and I got maybe like 70 pages into it by May of 2013. And then I decided that I, need, I needed to remove all the distractions um, from my life. And I just locked myself up in a trailer in Florida, like 20 minutes from my parents' house. And I wrote basically the whole thing in a month. I threw away most of what I had written um, or rewrote it. And, you know, and, and, and by, by the end of May, 2013 i had finished the whole thing holy shit um so the first draft the first the first 70 pages you got rid of you said almost all of them almost all of them you know um because they weren't um they just weren't good i mean (laughs) i tried you know i did the best i could writing in a couple of hours like before and after work and on the weekends it's hard to write when you're working full-time or when you're you know freelancing how do you make time you know you're, you're you're parsing together like you know as much time as you as you can, but you know you need you know to. I, I'm really fascinated by writers who can get up at five o'clock in the morning before their children wake up and write. Yeah. I, I can't do that. I um, that's why I don't have children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's like it's a lot, and I think I can do that in like fits and starts, but you burn yourself out quickly, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Like I think in my 20s, I was much. I could be more of like an Iron Man and like sleep for four hours a night and. But, you know, you start to fry your brain when you do that too much, unless you have, like, that, that thing. Like, some people are wired. Like, they can just they – they really, truly don't need sleep. Um, yeah, I don't think I do. I mean, I stay up really – I stay up late. David and I stay up really late. And then I get up at 7 o'clock or 7.30 every morning. I probably get, like, five hours of sleep every night. Yeah. But I, I also I, – you know, I still carry a lot of guilt. I think I'm just – that's just how I'm wired. And I feel guilty when I go to bed too early. And, like, I haven't done enough with my day or when I get up late. So are you are you being productive? Are you being productive late sure. at night? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're yeah. Not, you're not just yeah. watching Netflix like me. <laughs> no, I no. Sometimes we watch movies, obviously, because David is a filmmaker. But you know, we watch a lot of movies. But I also consider that you know part of my practice. Sure. Because I'm, you know. That's me too. See, I'm it's, being productive. Like I, of course you are. Yeah, <laughs> you're 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 processing, understanding how a story works. I, that's why I get up in the morning and I read before I go to work every day. I read a book like as much as I can with the two hours that I have before I leave for work. Yeah, and that, and that's that's a really important part of my day. I have to read every day or else I feel really awful about myself. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a good. I mean, it sounds good. It's just like wait till you have a kid. I don't, are you going to have kids or no? Do you not know? Mm-hmm. It's up in the air. <laughs> up in the air. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it, it yeah. changes it. It's uh, in terms of like scheduling. So uh, we you... have some time to decide, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're young. You're what are you? You're like 27. What are you? No, not 27. But we have plenty of time. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, like two dollar radio, putting this book out in January. 
they're awesome. I love them. That's a great. They're great people. I just talked to Eric for the show. He was uh, he was wonderful. Yeah, I heard. Wonderful to talk to, and uh, you know, obviously one of I think it's like one of everybody's favorite indie presses. Um, but how did you wind up with them? You just you, you wrote the book and you you sent it over, and that was it. I just I submitted it to the slush pile, and they decided they liked it. I <laughs> I guess I got I was I was very lucky I, um, because they were you know my first choice. I mean, I, I sent it out to a bunch of agents, and of course you know because it's written in this very particular style. Um, you know, nobody wanted to take a chance on it because it was not going to be a very, it was not, it was, it was not going to sell for a million dollars. Right. So, right. Well, so few, few books. Not do. worth it to them. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? It was not going to sell for a hundred, for a hundred thousand dollars or even enough to make it worthwhile for an agent. Um, but luckily there are people like Tudor Radio, you know, who are still passionate about, um, you know, about helping, uh, really experimental, really unusual, I think, loud uh, work, you know, find its place in the world. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great spot to land, and it it, uh, it augurs well for your future, and I, I just really have enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for being, um, you know, such a great guest and for and for talking about all this stuff, and, and congratulations, oh, yeah. congratulations on the book, and best of luck when it, when it rolls out uh, early next year. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, too. All right, folks, there we go. That is Sarah Gerard. Her novel, Binary Star, is due out in January of 2015 from $2 Radio. You can pre-order your copy right now, and you can find out more information over at sarah-gerard.com. She's also on the Facebook, and her Twitter handle is at Sarah number four. That's at Sarah, N-U-M-B-E-R, and then the numeral four. And don't forget to support her Kickstarter. Find her on Kickstarter, go to her website, get the information, throw down a few dollars so that she can go on book tour. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This program, this podcast, has its own official app. It's available wherever apps are available. It's free. And it's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You get the app on your device, and then the most recent 50 episodes of this program will be there waiting for you free. And then if you want to stream the full archives every single episode, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very easy, and it's dirt cheap. So please go get the app. The app itself is free. And if you want to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Tell me a story. Offer your thoughts. I don't even know what to say about this uh, past weekend. I feel like I've been through something. And who knows if this, uh, the guy who leapt from the balcony, he's at large. Is he coming back? Our neighbor didn't get busted on a... uh, in, on like a distribution charge or a dealing charge. It was just possession. So he'll be back. Can't wait for that. Can't wait for that elevator conversation. <laughs> and the thing is, he doesn't look like, he didn't even look that strung out, really. He often wears suits and ties. I thought he had like an office job. What do I know? Maybe he does. And he always looked tired. Which doesn't really seem like what you would expect from somebody who's on meth. But then again, you know, the guy's not sleeping. He's probably fucking exhausted. What a shitty drug. 
Why would you ever do crystal meth? What a bad idea. Of all drugs. Please remember that Duke Ellington died of pneumonia while at the same time battling lung cancer and that Yeats was known to talk to himself while walking the streets of Dublin. That is it for now. Uh, thank you to Sarah Gerard for talking with me. Go get her book. Go pre-order it. Go support her book tour. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I will be back again soon. I'm going to rest. I'm going to recuperate a little bit. I'm going to try to shake off my Legoland hangover. Yeah, see, you're on crystal meth. I'm on Legoland. <laughs> it's a different life. It's a big change. Don't ever let it. If you're out there and you're thinking about having kids, don't ever let anybody tell you any differently. It's a big change. You do things you wouldn't otherwise do that are very much outside of your uh, wheelhouse. I'm not going to Legoland unless I have a kid. It would be weird to go to Legoland without a child, I think. Though there are adults who do that. That's fucked up too. Don't be an adult who goes to like kid parks. Unless you're on drugs. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I was uh, in college uh, enthusiastic about going to Disneyland in an altered state. So I understand that whole angle. But just make sure that if you're doing it, you're not on crystal meth. Don't ever be on crystal meth. What's the point? Stay up for like four days and take things apart? It's miserable. <laughs>